Let us now turn to the reading of God's Word. And I just want to read two short passages. And if you listen carefully, you'll be able to pick up that there is a connection between the two of them that I hope to tease out during the sermon. The first passage is a single verse from Genesis chapter 3. And it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And the second passage is 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. First of all, then, the Genesis passage. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The second passage is 2 Samuel 11 verses 1 to 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is that not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant." Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, you are a great, a sovereign and transcendent God, and yet you have condescended to reveal yourself to us in your works of creation, in the incarnation, in and through the flesh of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the words of your Holy Scriptures. As we come now to reflect upon some of those words, Lord, we pray that you would lift the veil that so often lies over our hearts, lift the darkness from our eyes that we may see within these passages not only a reflection of ourselves, but also deeper than that, we might see the face of our Saviour and Redeemer shining as light through the darkness. For we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. One of my tasks as a professor at Grove City College is to teach the Capstone Humanities course. Uh, it occurs in the final year. It's called uh, Christianity and Civilization. And it's, it's pretty much a kind of open-ended course where the professor has to deal with certain texts, but is able to take them in directions that he or she so chooses. And what I try to focus on in that course is this. I try to get the students to realize that the way we live our lives is typically not the result of arguments that we have found compelling. The way we live our lives is often the result of the way we intuitively imagine the world to be, the way we intuitively imagine ourselves to be within that world. Most of the views we hold about ourselves, about others, and about the world around us are not the result of us having waded through the great texts of philosophy, they're things that we've absorbed from the world around us, things that we might say have shaped our imagination. And we can only be liberated 
from that imagination, from that fallen imagination, I think, if we come to a deeper understanding of what that imagination is, how it leads us to behave and to think about others. And that's why I want to zero in this evening on this passage from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because I think here we get a profound insight into the fallen imagination. It's the kind of passage that I guess most of us read and uh, thank the Lord will say, well, you know, I, I understand what's going on here, but I've never been an adulterer. Uh, this passage is a warning to me about how not to behave, but I don't particularly see myself in the passage. What I want to suggest to you this evening is, actually, we are all in this passage. This is a specific extreme instance of what the fallen human imagination can lead to. The context, uh, just briefly, is this. There's been an ongoing struggle with the Ammonites. It's a sort of foreign policy problem for David. And uh, he sent his uh, leading general, Joab, and his men away to the war. David, the king, the great king of Israel, at the peak of his powers, sent his general off to deal with this foreign policy issue. Some think that David is delinquent. They, they read into this passage that David staying in Jerusalem is kind of an implicit condemnation, that actually he should be out in the field leading his men at this point. I'm not sure that that's quite the case. Passage can be translated in a number of different ways. It's, it's a sort of ambiguous and it does not necessarily imply any criticism. I think the significance of this passage, that statement, is this. Joab is off fighting David's enemies in the field. But the real enemy is in Jerusalem. The real enemy is in David's heart. It's not going to be the Ammonites that make a train wreck of David's kingdom. It's going to be the actions that David takes while Joab is away that will lead to the train wreck of his kingdom. Joab is off fighting David's enemies. The real enemy, the one who is going to destabilize David's reign, is David himself. And that's the great tragedy of this story. I don't have time this evening, but if you want to uh, maybe over the next week, read on through the book of uh, 2 Samuel, you'll realize that David's reign is never the same again. David really is at the zenith of his power at this point. He's stabilized the domestic situation. He's dealt with the house of Stall. The kingdom is unified. The only problems he has are problems on the borders. After this... David's house will be torn apart by inner rebellion and destruction. For 2 Samuel 11 is, if you like, the fall of David. That's one of the reasons why I read it in conjunction with the fall of Eve. There are parallels, theological and linguistic parallels, between those two passages that we will come to in a few moments. But what can we draw from this passage about David that gives us insights into our own imaginations, the problems we face that can help us understand, if you like, that our enemy is not out there ultimately. Our enemy is in here. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is the power of the visual. 
David's on the roof and he looks out and he catches sight of a naked woman bathing. There's a couple of points we could make here. One of them is this, that accidentally seeing this woman naked was not a sin. David had not gone on the roof. The text gives us no hint that David had gone on the roof to be a sort of voyeur or a peeping Tom. He's not gone up there to spy on his neighbor's wife. It just happens that that occurs while he's up there. The sin, if you like, begins not when David catches a glimpse of this woman. The sin begins when he doesn't immediately take remedial action. Get off the roof. Turn the other way. Ignore what's going on. Maybe send somebody over to the house to warn the woman that she is more exposed than she understands. Nor does the text imply any wrongdoing on Bathsheba's part. The text nowhere hints that she is, you know, trying to display herself to neighbors. There's no hint here that she's uh, looking for a man. We know that her husband is off at the front. He's part of Joab's team. But there's no hint here that the woman is, is trying to create some sort of immoral situation with the king or any other neighbor. We can assume, I would guess, that the height of the palace roof just happened to give David a rather dramatic panoramic view of the neighborhood. And unfortunately, she's out there bathing. And I think that's reinforced, uh, this view that she's sort of innocent at this point, by the reason for her bathing. She is engaged in a ritual bathing required after her period. In other words, what this woman is engaged in is a religious act. The hint, the strong hint here is she's a very observant Jew. She's a godly, religious woman. There's quite a contrast in some ways that, you know, there David is being led into being something of a peeping Tom at the very moment when this really no-name woman is engaged in an act of ritual piety. First thing I want us to notice here, though, is this. Sight is powerful. I hinted at this this morning when I was speaking on 1 Corinthians. and I talked about how Corinthian culture was a very aesthetic culture, very wrapped up with how people looked. And I drew a parallel with American culture. American culture is very preoccupied with outward beauty. My wife and I, uh, we have BritBox on Amazon. We still watch more British television than American television. And one of the reasons we do is that we say, you know, we get ordinary looking people like ourselves on British TV. You know, you only get supermodels and hunky guys on, on a, a American TV. That seems to be, uh, it's a diet of unremitting beauty. Remember some years ago, just an aside, uh, Philadelphia was voted the, uh, I was living in Philadelphia at the time, was voted the ugliest city in America. Not that the buildings were ugly, but that the people were ugly. Uh, and uh, the students I was teaching at the time took great offense at this. And I pointed out to them, it was actually great news. I said, you know, ordinary looking guys like us, we can walk down the street, we look like Brad Pitt in Philadelphia. You know, it's fantastic. But America's very preoccupied with visual beauty. And that's because, of course, sight is powerful. I can never read this passage without thinking of a passage in another book that I've taught many times over the years, and that's Augustine's Confessions. Augustine, the great late 4th, early 5th century church leader, 
Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He writes a sort of spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. Some of you, many of you may have read it. It's a great book. And there's a powerful scene in the middle of that when he's talking about a very good friend he has called Olypius. And Olypius uh, hates the gladiatorial games. He never goes to the gladiatorial games. And one day, a bunch of Olypius's friends, a bunch of young guys, they said, they're going to drag him to the gladiatorial games. And Olypius says, well, you can drag me there, but I'm going to keep my eyes closed. And they take him to the games, and Olypius is sitting there with his eyes closed. And there's a gladiatorial combat going on. And at some point, one of the gladiators strikes a death blow, runs the other gladiator through with his sword, and the crowd roar. And the Olypius's eyes open. And Augustine has this turn of phrase where he says, the blow dealt to my friend's soul at that point was more deadly than the blow dealt to the dying gladiator. His eyes see this scene of extreme violence. And from then on, Olypius is addicted to the games. He has to keep going back for more and more and more. The visual is powerful and seductive. It's interesting that uh, it's actually been borne out now by some uh, research on the physiology of the brain. The consistent exposure to scenes of extreme violence or extreme pornography rewire the brain. You know, we could say Olypius is sort of uh, an anecdotal example of that. He sees this thing and it literally changes who he is. Same thing with David here. Think of pornography. What is the number one scourge, really, pastorally? Uh, maybe it's different here, but every pastor I've ever spoken to, and certainly when I was a pastor in Philadelphia, the number one scourge was young men addicted to pornography, enslaved to it. The visual is powerful. It draws people in. It transforms the way they think. It destroys them. Think of sight in the Bible. Think of how sight seduces Eve in Genesis 3. Well, no, think, first of all, think of it positively first. Think of the wonder of Adam when he first sees Eve. If you've never read Milton's Paradise Lost, you need to read the passage where Milton sort of puts words into Adam's mouth when Adam wakes up and opens his eyes and sees Eve for the first time. I read it in my humanities class at Grove and I say to the women there who've got boyfriends or engaged, I say, you ask your boyfriend or your fiance, you show him that passage and ask him if that's how he feels when he sees you. And if he hesitates to answer yes, kick him to the curb. You deserve so much better. When Adam opens his eyes, what does he see? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, it's an important distinction here. The pre-fall Adam, kind of slightly philosophical jargon here, but the pre-fall Adam looks at Eve and he sees another subject. What do I mean by that? He looks at her as a person. He doesn't see an object. All of the other creatures on the face of the earth are kind of objects. Adam doesn't look at them and see another person looking back at him. He sees creatures that he's got to tame. 
He sees crops or plants that he's got to plant, fertilize, etc., etc. But when he looks at Eve, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He doesn't see an object. He sees a subject. He doesn't see somebody to be manipulated and used. He sees somebody like himself. And the joy of Adam, as the joy of us, of course, when we gaze into the eyes of a loved one, comes from what? Being looked on as a person. Nobody wants to date a guy or a girl who looks at them and you can tell in their eyes they're looking at me as an object, sort of money, source of money or sex or a good time or something. You want to date somebody, you want to marry somebody, that when you look into their eyes, they look at you as another person. They look at you as a subject, not an object. Now, move to Genesis 3 and see how sight is going to be shifting in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What we often miss when we think about Eve's fall is this. She gets a lot right. I've no doubt that the tree was good for food. Man, it tastes so good, she hands it to her husband. Nothing in the passage suggests that the tree is not good for food. Secondly, it was a delight to the eyes. No reason to doubt that this was beautiful to look at. And it was to be desired to make one wise. Now, this is beginning to shift at this point. The fruit is gaining its significance at this point from how it can make her feel like God. That's where she's starting to go wrong. And then what does she do? She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. She took. The fruit's an object. The fruit has become an object that is there for her. Even though God has said it within a moral framework that says this is the one thing you can't do, she can, she can reach out and take it. And it seems to tick all the boxes of desirability. So why not? Why not treat that fruit as just one more object there to make me feel more like God? And of course, what happens then in Genesis 4, uh, straight away, is we realize that this plays out in human relations. Why does Cain kill Abel? Because Abel is an obstruction to Cain. Cain does not look at Abel and see another subject. Cain looks at Abel and he sees an object that is in his way to feeling good about himself. Abel's existence is a reminder of Cain's failure. And therefore, he must not be treated as another person. He must be disposed of as an awkward and obstructive object. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But think about this. First application then is be careful what we see. Images are powerful. What is the real evil of pornography? I would say the real evil of pornography, the many evils of pornography, it's connected to the sex trade industry. 
But one of the real evils of pornography is this. It teaches a philosophy of what it means to be a human being that makes all other human beings instruments and objects for the viewer's satisfaction. And that pervades our understanding of sexual relations, doesn't it, today? Commented recently in a short article that, isn't it interesting that even in Christian circles, we don't hear the phrase making love anymore. People talk about having sex. That's interesting. Having him, the second implies taking. And the second also ignores the subjectivity of the partner. You can only make love to somebody that you know, to somebody who is a person to you, to somebody, to use the language of Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, to somebody who is a face. You can have sex with any old body. The shift in language, even in Christian circles, is very interesting to me relative to our philosophy of how we relate to other people. Secondly, see how the power of sex in this situation really does lead to the objectification of Bathsheba. There's an absolute insanity, isn't there, to what happens here. Overwhelmed with desire, David first inquires about Bathsheba, and then he has her brought to the palace. Tremendous risk involved here. It's crazy what he's doing. It makes no sense rationally. Her married status makes no difference to him. It's crazy. It's insane. But of course, isn't that our own experience with sexual sin in our world? Every day, the, the news headlines carry the story of somebody who did something stupid and it's connected to sexual desire. It makes no sense that they did it. They met some woman in a bar while they were on a business trip and they flushed 35 years of happy marriage down the toilet, alienated their children for one night with somebody they don't even know. But people do it. There's a craziness to this. It's what makes the story of David very believable. It's crazy, but you can absolutely believe that it happened because it absolutely reflects the continued reality of what it means to be a human being. And notice this. <clears throat> She's an object. There's a big debate in the literature about, is this rape or not? I really don't want to get into that if you're interested in my opinion on it. My opinion is... I think it is certainly sexual abuse of some kind because I'm not sure that a woman who's the mere you know, husband, wife of a middle-ranking military officer is off at the front, I don't know that she has the capacity, the ability to say no in this situation, which really raises all kinds of very disturbing questions. But notice the passage, the way it talks about Bathsheba. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived. 
and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Notice she's the woman. You can understand the writer using that terminology up until the point where her name is introduced. But the writer persists in using that language after her name is introduced. And interestingly enough, the only other time in the extended chapter where she will be referred to as Bathsheba is again when we are told that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite and is mourning his death. Because to Uriah, she's a person. To Uriah, she's a subject. To David, she's just an object at this point. He will grow to love her, I think. The later story of David and Bathsheba is touching in a kind of way. But she's just an object to him at this point. Isn't that the temptation of the modern Western imagination? I talked this morning how sin is universal, but different cultures manifest sin in different ways. What is the sin of our culture? I think it is this. The sin of our culture is to imagine that we are born free and everywhere are in chains. That we are fundamentally independent individuals. That all of our relationships are therefore contractual and are to exist for our self-fulfillment. If you have that way of thinking about yourself then you will tilt towards seeing everybody else as an object and a problem. We see this in the divorce laws in this country. Christians got very hot under the collar about gay marriage in 2015. But actually, 1970 is the watershed in divorce law in America where divorce becomes a a matter of no fault. It effectively means that, hey, if one partner or the other are no longer getting the satisfaction they expect from marriage, they can dissolve the partnership. What's interesting about no-fault divorce, of course, is children are just collateral damage. They don't feature in the equation. They're a problem to be dealt with. After the bigger problem of the fact that the marriage is no longer emotionally satisfying has been dealt with. Our imagination tilts us towards thinking of others as objects. And it's very easy for us to point the finger at the pornographers and the sleazy people and say, well, they treat people as objects. But then when you start to think about how we live our own lives, our hands are not so clean either. When you look at others, do you see another subject or do you see an object? Do you see somebody you can use for your benefit? Or do you see somebody you can give yourself to in service? Also brings us, I think, to the seductive nature of power. Why does David do this? Well, I've said the the erotic, for want of a better word, is a very powerful force in human history. There's a reason why we can still read the Iliad today and understand what it says. If you've not read the Iliad, it's the story of Helen of Troy. Uh, 
Menelaus, his wife Helen, is seduced by and sort of kidnapped by Paris, taken to Troy. Menelaus and his brother Agamemnon get an army together and head over and besiege the city for 10 years. It's a story of Greek gods and heroes. But we read it today and it still resonates. Why? Because it's the plot of every soap opera on lunchtime TV in America. People are still seducing other people's wives and husbands and running off with them and causing havoc within the family. It happens on a smaller, petty scale most of the time. But the basic dynamic is there in the Iliad. It's there today. Why? It's a hardy perennial, a fallen human existence, I think. So why does David do this? He does it because he can. Power changes people. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. So far, David has shown himself to be a good king. But here at last, the power has gone to his head. One could speculate about the psychology, I think. Sometimes uh, uh, we criticize corrupt leaders, but it's not that they started off as corrupt. Uh, if you've ever held a leadership position, however small the leadership position will might be, you'll know you, you take all kinds of hits in that position that others don't. I used to be a dean at the seminary where I taught. Now I'm just a member of faculty at a college, much lower down the food chain, very happy to be there because I don't have to lie awake at night worrying how to pay the bills, pay the health insurance to the employees. With lack of responsibility comes great peace of mind in many ways. And the temptation when you have a position of responsibility is, well, to cut yourself a bit of slack every now and then. Because I've taken more hits, maybe I can indulge myself here and there where other people shouldn't be able to do it, but maybe I can. Maybe that's going on, what's going on with David here. He's paid his dues militarily. He doesn't have to go out onto the field to prove that he's willing to put his neck on the line for the cause of God and his people. He really doesn't. He has a stellar military record under very hostile circumstances at home and away. Maybe he's cutting himself a bit of slack. Maybe, though, it's because, merely because he can do it. I remember reading an interview some years ago of a Tory MP, Conservative MP back home, very powerful man, who'd ended up falling in one of those inevitable scandals that comes along. And he wrote a, an, a, an article on it. It was interesting because it wasn't one of those articles you usually get from people in power where they're trying to excuse what they did. He made no excuse. He was ashamed, but he made no excuse. And he said, the reason I did it was because I felt my power made me invulnerable and it gave me a kick to transgress. I loved getting away with stuff that I shouldn't be allowed to get away with. He seemed to emerge from the scandal, it has to be said, a wiser and better man. But I was interested in his statement, I did it because I could and I enjoyed it. Maybe that's what's going on with David here. But notice, too, we get the manifestation of that aspect of the fall that I noted earlier, that objectification that goes on. Notice the language of taking. Eve reaches out and takes the fruit. David reaches out and takes Bathsheba. The writer is self-consciously using the same language so that if you know the Bible, you connect those two events. He's making a clear point here. And interestingly enough, 
The writer's also making a point that connects to 1 Samuel 8. Because if you remember in 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites have demanded a king. Samuel's upset and he goes to the Lord and the Lord says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. You go and tell them the kind of king I'm going to give them. And if you read 1 Samuel 8, you'll notice that one word is repeated again and again and again. The king will be characterized by taking. He will take your wives, he will take your daughters, he will take your sons, he will take your lands. He will take, take, take. And we read that, of course, and we tend to think of Saul. That's what Saul does. And then we get to 2 Samuel 11, and suddenly, I think it's for the first time, suddenly the language of take is used about David as well. David has many wives at this point. He could take another woman as his wife if he wished. Why does he take Bathsheba, wife of Uriah? Because he could. I suspect using one's power to transgress makes one feel like God. And that's what David's really enjoying here. It's not so much the sexual relationship as it's the power. Power is deceptive. And its exercise in transgression makes us feel like God. Now you might say, I'm not a powerful person. I suggest to all of us, we live in a world where each of us has tremendous power now. I'm not talking political power. Think about technology. What does technology teach each of us to think about the world Technology teaches us that the world can be manipulated into anything we wish by the sheer application of our will through the medium of technology. Technology delivers power to each and every one of us. Technology enables us to feel like gods. I am no longer subject to time and space as an immigrant in the way that your ancestors were subject to time and space as immigrants. When they left their homelands, they never saw or heard their loved ones again. That is not my experience of immigration. Why? Because of technology, transport, television, telephones, Zoom. All of these things make me think that I am all powerful and there is nothing that cannot be overcome by the sheer application of will. And what are the consequences of this? Well, I think one of the things this passage does is it teaches us that David's self-mythology, the self-mythology of the fallen imagination, that we are born free and sovereign over ourselves and over our destinies, that's a lie. What we learn in this passage is particular private sins always have wider consequences and often harm the innocent. David's private sexual act with Bathsheba has profound public consequences for himself, for his house, for Uriah, who incidentally becomes an object and a problem to be got rid of, and for Bathsheba, and for the child, the one unequivocally innocent party in all this. we also see that there will be devastating consequences quite directly for the house of David. 
Bathsheba is the daughter of a man called Eliam. Have you ever asked yourself who Eliam is? Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is one of David's closest advisors who joins Absalom's rebellion. But more than anything else, shatters David and shatters his kingdom. I wonder, could it be that David's affair with his granddaughter and murder of his grandson-in-law shaped his attitude to David's kingship? He'd be less than human if it hadn't done. Maybe we should cut Ahithophel a little bit of slack. Maybe he betrayed David because he had been deeply betrayed by David. The catastrophe of David's reign and of David's sin has profound public consequences. It will bring his kingdom down. So what are we to do about this, finally? I've given you a very bleak picture of the psychology of David, and I've said when you probe into it, in terms of the seductive power of the visual, the desire to be like God, the treating of other people like objects, is that not our imagination? Well, the great thing is, of course, that while David is as good as it gets in the Old Testament, he's not ultimately as good as he gets. The story of David, thankfully, does not end with David. The story of David ends with David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What David and Bathsheba teaches us is David is not the one who's going to do it all for us. High hopes of David. He starts well. He ends disastrously. But the great news is it doesn't hang on David. It hangs on the coming of the one in David's line, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who does not teach uh, others, uh, treat others as objects. The one whose eyes are so holy as they cannot even behold sin. The one who, though he considered it not robbery to be equal with God, yet humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He was God and could have acted like God, but he chose not to. David's greatest son is in some ways the anti-David at this point. And he is the one, of course, in whom God's purposes are brought to a magnificent and climactic end. So the good news for those of us who are subject to the fallen imagination is this. There is one. There is one among us who has succeeded where David failed, where Adam failed, where we failed. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And turning to him, in repentance and faith, placing one's trust in Him is what delivers us from the fallen human imagination. Let's pray. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, though we mourn and lament not only the crisis of David's kingdom, but the fallenness and the crisis that lives within each and every one of our own hearts. We rejoice. We rejoice that you yourself sent your Son, your only Son, the Son whom you loved, to become sin for us, to die on the cross at Calvary and to rise triumphant, to rise triumphant over the grave. For we pray these things in His precious name.